You're listening to STEM Essential, an Iowa Governor's STEM Advisory Council podcast. Hear from leading advocates and voices about why STEM education is crucial for our world today and tomorrow. Welcome, everybody, to Season 3 of STEM Essentials, podcasts featuring some of Iowa's and the nation's leading thinkers in STEM. This season is all about vaccine by STEM. I'm Jeff Weld, Director of Iowa STEM Council, an Edgenomic Development Initiative where education and economic development merge to improve lives and communities. The people we're hearing from are Edgenomic developers, co-mingling jobs with learning. Today, featuring Patricia Winokur, MD, Executive Dean of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine and Professor of Internal Medicine specializing in infectious diseases. Among the many globally recognized accomplishments of her distinguished career, just one I must mention for its relevance to our conversation is Dr. Winokur's creation of the Vaccine and Treatment Evaluation Unit at the University of Iowa, one of the leading vaccine research programs in the country, and one of only nine in the nation funded by the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Oh, and I would like for our listeners to know that she grew up right here in Iowa City. Thank you for making time for us and welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really pleased to have the opportunity to talk to you today. Wonderful. Well, let's start by inviting our listeners who, by the way, include K-12 students and their parents and all sorts of STEM advocates in education, business, government, and nonprofits to get to know you. How did you arrive at this line of work, for example? Take us back especially to your K-12 experience and share significant moments or people that set you on your path? You know, so I think the the difference that I have is I grew up in Iowa City where I was surrounded by all of these really bright uh, faculty members and scientists that are in this town. That was an opportunity for me to really learn what types of jobs they had And it was exciting to hear about some of the patient interactions that they had. It was a nice opportunity for me to think about the sciences, but also then with that human spin. And that was very appealing to me. Wonderful. No doubt. And great. Here we are in 2021. Uh, The topic you're invited to represent today is, of course, the medical science behind COVID-19, also known as SARS-CoV-2 and its vaccines. I'm going to start with a puzzlement that I have and hopefully our listeners share with me. And that is that there was a brush with another SARS pandemic back in 2003. I think just a few Americans got it, although hundreds of lives were lost around the world. So could you explain to us the difference between that SARS episode and this one that accounts for such wildly different outcomes? So I think in the original SARS coronavirus epidemic that was in the early 2000s, we A, were much quicker at recognizing it and really trying to isolate people. And we were able to squelch the epidemic before it spread from person to person outside of some of the hospitals that were infected. So that was helpful. But as time goes by, viruses continued to evolve. And I think the SARS coronavirus 2 evolved the ability to spread person to person 
much more readily. And even if we had had the insight to really hop in and isolate people as aggressively as we did with the original SARS epidemic, this virus is a little different and it's spreading more readily from person to person. So that has made things really difficult. I see. So as I understand it, and hopefully the popular press has educated all of us enough to know that there are several coronaviruses out there. Uh, you mentioned coronavirus two. I think I've read that there are six maybe. And so whatever the number there may be out there in the world, I think we're all curious why this particular corona is so much nastier than the other five. So there are coronaviruses that cause the common cold and they've been around for eons. So there are many coronaviruses that are very benign and cause a very short-lived stuffy nose, sore throat type of syndrome. But what's happened with the SARS coronavirus 2, the one that's been associated with COVID-19, is it has developed the ability to really bind more readily to some of the cells in the body. So that allows it to gain entry more readily and it's spreading from person to person more readily because of that. It doesn't take as many viruses to bind. And then this one is particularly virulent because it's actually stimulating a very aggressive immune response in the body that in addition to the damage that the virus causes, the body's response is causing also a very uh, detrimental um, kind of physiologic response in the human that's infected. Yeah, I definitely want to go into that with you. But before I do, that's a really interesting point regarding the, the protein spikes, the receptors of our cells and the binding that takes place there. I think everybody's seen this now iconic image of these protein spiked outer surfaces of the corona, and they all probably have the same RNA inside. So the, uh, the difference here, as I summarize what I think you just put out there, is that the, the content of the, those protein spikes can vary. Some, this SARS-CoV-2 in particular, the protein configuration of those spikes is just different enough that they gain access easier to the cells than the other ones. That's exactly it. So every time you mutate different pieces of a protein, it changes how that protein folds and it exposes different pieces of the protein. And sometimes as it folds just slightly differently with those subtle mutations, it can bind more ready, readily to the human receptors and gain entry into the cells more readily. And, and as far as the internal contents, the, the gene, the, the RNA, that does not necessarily vary. They all program the cell to make more of them. So there are different pieces of every virus. There are ones that are designed to um, replicate themselves. There are some that are causing just that structural um, kind of organization of the virus. Those in the coronaviruses that we're seeing are pretty stable and pretty similar, but it's really those changes in spike protein that are very important, but also you can evolve different changes in other parts of the virus that can eventually go on to cause them to replicate themselves faster. Mm -hmm. So not only just gaining better entry into the cells, but sometimes those other changes that we aren't talking as much about that are outside of the spike protein can have pretty dramatic effects as well. Mm. 
All right, let's talk about those dramatic effects. If someone is unfortunate enough to inhale a, a SARS-CoV-2 virus, SARS, by the way, in one way it says it all, severe acute respiratory syndrome, but in another way it doesn't tell us much at all about the physiological activity. Could you take us through that cascade of events inside the body once we are unfortunate enough to intake the COVID-19 that makes it so dangerous? So one of the the things that we have learned is the spike protein, which is that protein that sits on the outer surface of the virus, binds to a type of uh, cell receptor called the ACE2 receptor. Unfortunately, that ACE2 receptor is expressed on a lot of different cells in the body. So that's one of the reasons why this virus can actually cause so many damaging events in someone who's infected. We see people that have the typical respiratory syndrome, and that's part of the name, the severe acute respiratory syndrome. But we see changes in brain function. People end up getting a lot of uh, nausea and diarrhea because there are receptors in the gut. There are so many different receptors that this virus can cause a wealth of side effects. What happens once those viruses get into those cells, the cells themselves will get damaged and often die. So that's why you'll see some of these people having um, really severe organ dysfunction. We see terrible renal failure in addition to a respiratory failure. We see people that are a little bit uh, delirious. Their, their brain function is dysfunctional. And that's sometimes a combination of the death that occurs of the cells that have been infected. But then the other thing that's going on is our body has developed a response system to protect us from viruses. And that response, it's our immune response, can actually enhance the damage to the cells around the body. So it's a, it's a good thing. It's trying to control the virus spread, but as it gets unchecked, that immune response can actually have damaging events that are in and of itself. And so this virus, because it can really bind so broadly throughout the body, and that immune response is so intense, people can get very sick very quickly with this virus. Wow, quite a systemic uh, failure, systemic assault, I guess. And this ACE2 receptor, what's it do normally? Oh, so, you know, there are a lot of reasons that that uh, virus helps us with cardiac function and other things. This, this is a receptor that helps us get certain enzymes into the cells that can help us with salt and water uh, functions and other things like that. So it's a very useful receptor. It just happens to be that the SARS coronavirus figured out how to use it too. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's tempting. I know we all do this. We call something like that ingenious or, or uh, uh, you know, um, somehow, thought up. But of course, it's evolution. And it, it's a random act, I suppose. The fact that this uh, SARS virus happens to have these proteins was an occurrence in nature that uh, just happened to work and work 
in this case, in its perspective, working very well. I, I have to admit, as I have learned more and more about different infectious diseases, they are very ingenious. And many uh, viruses have learned how to use proteins in the body to their advantage. Mm-hmm. So this is, a, this is a common occurrence, and it's, they're very clever. Well, another puzzlement I know everybody shares is the, the Spanish flu, we've all come to know quite a bit about now, was really clobbering young people, 20-somethings, I think was the, the most prone and, and affected age group, whereas obviously the most prone and effective age group here is, is older people. What's the difference that makes uh, older Iowans, older Americans, older human beings more prone to this bug contrasted to the Spanish flu? So the Spanish flu, so influenza is an interesting difference compared to coronaviruses. And all of us come in contact with flu throughout our lives. And the flu viruses uh, mutate and circulate throughout history. And your body accumulates an immune response to all those previous flu strains that you've seen. In 1918, some of the older people had seen a virus that was more similar to the 1918 flu. And so they had a little bit of protection that the younger people didn't have. Coronavirus that is associated with the COVID-19 pandemic today, none of us have seen. And so now you take a very severe virus and you take people who already have compromised lungs Maybe their heart function isn't as strong as it used to be when they were in their 20s. That's what's uh, different here with the COVID-19 pandemic is it's attacking people that already have some uh, damage in their body, typically. So its novelty is also its deadliness. Exactly. And nobody has any immunity to this virus. Fascinating. Well, then thank goodness comes a vaccine, and you lead a UI team that conducted trials of the Pfizer vaccine, I believe 250 subjects or so. Of all the vaccines, Moderna, AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, et cetera, tell us how you got involved with Pfizer. So this is, I think, the uh, luxury of having spent about 20 years working on vaccine trials. We are known around the country and to the different companies and to the National Institutes of Health for being a group that has a lot of experience managing these types of clinical trials. And so Pfizer actually sought us out because they knew we had that history and knew how to run fast-paced, high-quality trials. We are all so proud of that institute there at the University of Iowa and you and the global reputation of your operation that Iowa is on the map as a part of the solution to all of this. So let's talk about our the, the uh, vaccine itself. Our listeners are likely a bit more STEM savvy than many and probably are aware that some vaccines are weakened versions of an infectious bug. Others are fragments of dangerous uh, viruses or bacteria. And we all know that the uh, mode is that they alert the immune system in the event that it sees the real deal. But this one's quite different and quite intriguing. Not anything like, I don't think, outer shell fragments or weakened versions. Could you uh, 
break down for us how this one's unique and, and how it works in layperson terms? Sure. So the messenger RNA vaccines, if you remember your molecular biology, we have in our bodies DNA. And DNA is then transcribed into RNA. And RNA then signals the ribosomes to make proteins. So this is a, a, a sequence that we have for all of our cells in our body. What the vaccine for, that from Pfizer and Moderna has done is they have gone back and they said, okay, we're going to have your cell make the protein of interest. We're going to provide those ribosomes in your cells a copy of messenger RNA that it can take up and then create the protein of interest. So what we describe it as is they've given the cell the blueprint. And then your cell takes that blueprint and makes the important protein. And then because it's been made in your cell in a very natural way, it's expressed on the surface to the immune system in a very natural way that you would see similar to what happens with a coronavirus infection. So it's a very reproducible way a very um, sensitive way of making a very perfect protein that expresses itself and the immune system recognizes it in the right way. More typically, we will create proteins in a manufacturing plant. And then when we inject your arm, you're getting the protein itself. Sometimes those proteins are a little ragged a little different in how they are folded and expressed. So the messenger RNA bypasses some of that uh, manufacturing difficulty, I would say. Mm -hmm. the, the technological achievement behind this, I think, is underappreciated, maybe under, uh, uh, less uh, understood by many, but rivals any technological technological achievement in human history, it strikes me. I mean, moon landing astounded everybody, but this is a this is a moon landing of its own, uh, equally epic and uh, equally transformative. This is going to be a type of vaccine that we use from now on, and I think one of the things that people don't recognize. Everybody's focused on the speed, and we are thrilled that the speed happened and we got a vaccine as quickly as we did. But there have been decades of work going on, probably like the moon landing, where there's a lot of science that has gone into that culminating event. Mm -hmm. And so we have, first of all, for 50 years, been understanding things like RNA and understanding DNA going to RNA going to proteins. So just that very fundamental science but over the past 20 years, we have been really honing our understanding of different types of molecular vaccines. So this is not a fast vaccine in that regard. We've been working towards this with people that just realized that this was gonna be the way of the future. This is a fast way of creating vaccine. We proved that. Now we know that they're safe as well. There's a really interesting wrinkle or subtle detail to this vaccine that I think our, our listeners would be intrigued by. And that is 
how this genetic material, the RNA from this virus, can be administered into someone's arm in the version of a shot and doesn't itself alert an immune reaction on its way to the cells. So one of the differences, messenger RNA is very unstable in and of itself. If we simply put messenger RNA into your arm, it would be broken down too quickly and you wouldn't make proteins. But what the manufacturers and the scientists have discovered is they can actually surround that messenger RNA with a lipid particle. And that lipid particle protects the messenger RNA from degradation. And some of the secret sauce in these different vaccines, the difference between Moderna and the difference between Pfizer, is that lipid nanoparticle and how it surrounds the messenger RNA. And so that's in and of itself another piece of science because those lipid particles actually are a little bit of a way of enhancing entry into the cell so that the messenger RNA can be picked up by ribosomes. It can have some little tweaking of uh, turning the immune system on itself. So there's a lot of science that's in that little envelope, that lipid envelope that's around the messenger RNA. Uh, it's an astounding invention. And in fact, it's the, nat- it's the reason for the deep freeze requirement, right? It's those fat droplets that... Uh... And the messenger RNA. Because if we let it sitting out there, that, that would be the other thing that would break down very quickly. And you did mention that these uh, nanolipid uh, vessels that the messenger RNA is packaged in can themselves uh, uh, instigate an immune reaction, or are they more or less evasive? So they're a little bit of an immune stimulant, but also they're very uh, much designed to help fuse that lipid droplet with the cell membrane to allow the messenger RNA inside. So there's different things about them that are important. Yeah, what a what an intellectual milestone uh, for the human mind to come up with. Well, here come variants now with the virus, and uh, these are said to spread easier, that they are sometimes more virulent. What mutation would account for, I, you know, when we hear they're more spreadable and they're more virulent, I think most of us look at each other and say, how could anything be more spreadable and more virulent than what we already have? What's the mutation? What's the change that accounts for these properties that are scary? So this is where the little subtle mutations, and sometimes it's a single amino acid that gets uh, mutated, changes that folding of the spike protein. And that folding change allows it to bind even faster and better to the ACE2 receptors. It often takes very little. And the other thing that's happening is as you mutate those spike proteins, antibodies only recognize nine amino acid sequences. Mm. And if you're taking an area where your antibodies are binding, and that's a really critical area, and you mutate one of nine amino acids, you're changing that entire, um, what we call epitope, which is the the kind of piece of the protein that stimulates that antibody. 
And so what we're a little worried about as we have these subtle mutations that we are evading some of the antibodies that we have developed over time, either through natural coronavirus infection or through vaccination. Hmm. These variants so far appear to be just as prone or, or just as defensible by the vaccine than the original COVID-19, correct? Um, what we're starting to see, and the data is uh, being generated day by day, is so far the vaccine is partially protective. The mutations are reducing the efficacy of the vaccine to some extent, but not completely. And so that is the thing that is worrying us the most right now is we need to get this pool of viruses out in the community under control so they can't keep mutating. Mm -hmm. What we know, some of the data, the South African variant is the one that we're most worried about because it's showing the, the biggest decline in efficacy of the vaccines. Yeah, I think that reminds us all of the, the antibiotic regimen we're often put on when we have an infection. The doctor prescribes that you fully complete this uh, this dose or, or this regimen, uh, don't stop early. And it sounds like there's a similar effect going on with regard to the vaccine and the, the length of time it's taking to get it widespread is part of the challenge with the mutants and the variants popping up. That's exactly it. Viruses mutate as they replicate. Uh, they make mistakes. The way that viruses replicate, and they replicate fast, you know, minutes they're replicating themselves they just make mistakes as they're replicating themselves so quickly and those mistakes sometimes can actually gain them an advantage being able to spread faster to faster faster occasionally those mutations make it less virulent and the vac the virus would die out but we have so many viruses circulating in the world now because so many people have been infected with this pandemic strain of SARS coronavirus that we are allowing for selection of the, the viruses that have an advantage. Mm -hmm. so the goal is to try and get this under control as fast as possible so that we can stop that natural mutation rate. So true. And that pace with which all of this is happening is my next uh, item of curiosity. There is a concern out there that I know you are well aware of that keeps some people from rushing to get their vaccine. Uh, they feel that it was rushed to production and maybe not entirely proven to be safe. But in fact, the, the government health emergency declaration enabled it to be fast tracked. So would you clarify for our listeners, especially those who are hesitant regarding safety, it can be both rushed and safe? So this is the story of understanding what's happened over the past 20 years. So we have been developing these vaccine platforms for 20 years. We've tested them in animals. The other thing that we know is we've done a lot of research on the original SARS coronavirus in 2002, and then there was another very concerning coronavirus, which was the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome virus, MERS, 
which was another coronavirus that caused pretty severe respiratory disease that we were worried about, people have been diligently studying those viruses and creating vaccines that have been tested in animals. So we had a lot of safety data and knowledge of how to protect animals with vaccines from SARS and MERS over the past 20 years. When the SARS coronavirus 2 evolved, we had all that information to go back to and we could take all that we had learned and rapidly apply it to this vaccine and this particular virus. So the rush isn't quite as rushed as people think. But then anytime we create a vaccine, we go through very standard steps of safety. We first test it in a small number of, first we test it in animals, see if it's safe. This is where we were lucky because we had a lot of uh, work done on the original SARS and MERS. But then we get into humans and we watch them very carefully. We do daily physical exams. We watch their blood studies and chemistries, all sorts of things. Once we've got that early safety, we go into uh, slightly larger studies where we're really trying to hone in on the dose. Those safety studies, what we call phase one and phase two, happened exactly the way that we do any vaccine trial or any drug study. Once we have that safety data, then we can go into the bigger studies. And a lot of the speed was not because we jeopardized safety, it was because a lot of money was put into creating this vaccine and testing it. And the companies were motivated. We have a pandemic, the federal government helped kind of subsidize their work so that if they created a vaccine that didn't work, they weren't out all that money that stimulated them. And in the behind the scenes, they were creating the manufacturing plants to make this vaccine. Nobody would do that under normal circumstances. You wait until you have a product and then you gear up manufacturing because you otherwise would be wasting money and would be throwing drug out. So there were a lot of things in the background that were happening that created this speed and it wasn't jeopardizing safety. Mm -hmm. Compressed but not compromised is how I interpret what you're saying. All of the standard protocols, the vast trials across the world, the, the infusion of monies from governments and the private sector enabled a compressed timeline, but certainly not compromised. I think that's a great way of putting it. So, you know, we are all familiar with vaccines we've enjoyed and thank goodness for the polio vaccine, the flu vaccine. I think a puzzlement that uh, we all have is how do we, we get a lifetime protection from polio with, I think, one administration. We get, a, we get an annual protection from the flu with an annual administration of vaccine. Is this one one or the other? How long do you figure this vaccine will last and why is it different from those? So we're going to have to learn that. We don't know yet. The durability of this immune response is unknown, and that's something that we're testing in the clinical trials. Everyone who enrolled is followed for two years, and that's to really understand the titers. But also, 
it's going to depend on these, this mutation rate and how this virus evolves. If some of these variant strains become predominant, we may need different shots to boost the immune response and just tweak it a little bit towards those new variants. So this is something that we are learning as we're going, and this uh, pandemic is keeping all of us on our toes. Intellectually stimulating, uh, I'm sure, every step of the way. Longer term, is this the last we'll see of COVID or any other pandemic? And if not, how do we prepare better for the next one? So we will have more pandemics. Um, we know with influenza, and honestly, we thought the next pandemic was probably going to be one of these unusual influenza strains. So that's something we can't let our guard down. There are other viruses that may creep into this that cause pandemics. Um, Ebola was one that people were worried could spread. So we'll be keeping an eye out. We have surveillance systems around the world where we're watching for unusual disease patterns. The other thing is continuing to work on the speed that we can create vaccines. These messenger RNA platforms are here to stay and they have been a very effective way at creating a fast vaccine. So those types of innovations are gonna be there but we're gonna to have to really up our game with preparedness and really working on developing better systems in the world, not just the United States, of preparing ourselves for rapid response, having stockpiles of masks, all these things that we really understand are expensive but can be really important. Speaking of preparedness, and finally, what advice would you care to offer to young Iowans who are inspired by this pandemic to aspire to careers such as yours? So the STEM field, every single one of them has played a role in creating this vaccine. If you're into math, one of the things that's so much fun is watching these sophisticated mathematical models that people have used to try and understand who is the best target for vaccines. I don't have the skills to do that, but I'm in awe of the modeling that they've been able to do. The engineers helped us create these manufacturing plants. They helped us create masks and shields that are really very effective in the hospital setting. Science, that's the whole underpinnings of understanding messenger RNA, vaccines, immunology, all of these very complex biologic systems. There's something in the STEM fields that you can fit into all of the steps that were required. Uh, I'd, this is an exciting field. It's an exciting time. There will be new challenges that the STEM fields will be important for. So I highly recommend this as a career choice for our kids. And hope that they uh, join us here in Iowa and are helping us innovate throughout our lives. Wonderful. I, I have to believe, and I hope you do too, that high school biology class 
now, especially the unit on molecular genetics, means a lot more to those kids as they learn about transfer RNA and messenger RNA and DNA, et cetera. I, there are so many things that they can learn that are very practical and evolving as we speak. We've learned a lot about uh, technology with communications. That's another really interesting thing that we've learned during this pandemic that's not related to the vaccine, but lots of different things that we can use their skills to explore more and innovate further. Thank you so much. Lots to be inspired by, and we're inspired by you. Dr. Patricia Winokur, Executive Dean of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine and Professor of Internal Medicine specializing in infectious diseases. Thank you for all the enlightenment for Iowa's STEM community on this historic state we find ourselves in, and for all that you and your team do to see us through it. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. This has been episode two of our third season of STEM Essential Podcasts, featuring the voices of edunomic innovation, presented by the Iowa Governor's STEM Advisory Council and sponsored by AccuMold, world leaders in precision micromolding, headquartered right here in Ankeny. Thank you for listening. Today's and all STEM Essential Podcasts are available at iowastem.org forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening to STEM Essential. This podcast is generously co-sponsored by Collins Aerospace and Mid-American Energy, proud partners of Iowa STEM Council. To learn more and find resources, please visit iowastem.gov.